Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Ryden and Ken Holyoke. Welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast in Fredericton, New Brunswick. I'm Gabe Reinick, and I'm joined, as I am at varying intervals lately, but ideally fortnightly, Ken Holyoke, uh, with the glow of a recently minted PhD. How are you, Ken? Doing very well. Back in uh, back in Lethbridge here, we are we are socked in with uh, forest fire smoke, um, and it's about 14 degrees, which is which is strange. That's cold for a forest fire, isn't it? Uh, well, you know the forest fires aren't here, but we get to share in their uh, in their smoke. So, oh dear. Well, uh, well, that's no fun for anyone. But um, so, listener, we've got a um, kind of a special uh, episode for you um, today, which is going to be devoid of much of the usual accoutrement that we we plug into these things. Um, and we also are not quite sure what um, when it's coming out, but it um, it'll be in relation. So we're just slipping this in to our uh, our podcast stream. So if you haven't heard from us in a while, there'll be more explanation on that soon. Um, but we're happy <laughs> to join you this way. And um, and uh, Ken, Ken has got an alien behind him. Don't worry about it, listener. It's nothing to worry about. He's been returned. Uh, he's been returned mostly safe and sound. Um, and uh, so the, the, the what we're going to do today is Ken and I were um, uh, special guest stars, I think uh, is the phrase, on a review of Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Review and discussion, I should say, of Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull with... Kingdom of the, the Crystal Pod- Skull. What's that? Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I'm sorry. I forgot that crucial, yeah. crucial part of this fine yeah, work yeah. of art that the listeners want to hear about. And I think the listener would recognize this as what they call a crossover in the biz. I think so. Um, and uh, But basically, it was just, um, you know, Ken and I have uh, built sort of a reputation for um, for not just archaeological uh, commentary, but also um, this is sort of the style section, right? The, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. We do uh, restaurant reviews, movie reviews. Um, you know, I think we'd happily do theater reviews. We particularly actually like to review um, bottles of pretty old scotch. So yeah, um, entertainment and culture. Us, I think that that's the section that we uh, that's where we're landing. You know, maybe we should switch from being a history podcast to an entertainment and culture podcast. It's true. It's true. Something for any taste, really. And um, and anyway, that uh, discussion though was with our friends over at the podcast. It's called Screens of the Stone Age. And it is available uh, pretty much uh, anywhere you can find this podcast. You can find their version. And that's hosted by Joshua Lind- Lindell, uh, Dr. Kimberly Plomp, and Dr. Ross Barnett. And they are respectively at, I believe, the University of Manitoba, yep. the University of the Philippines. And um, where is uh, Dr. Barnett, Ken? He is at the University of Copenhagen. It's also it's also sponsored by the Paleoanthropological Society of Canada, which is kind of cool. So that is cool, and that gives a little sense that um, their focus tends to be a little bit different than ours. They, uh, I, I haven't listened to all of their material, but uh, I've listened to some of it, and um, their focus tends to be more on biological anthropology, whereas ours is more on archaeology. And we understand um, you'll hear about this in the Spe- episode. Oh, go ahead, specifically, sorry. specifically that their whole. Uh, show is framed around critiquing movies that have a paleoanthropological or archaeological spin to them. That's right. Yeah. And they um, they actually review a ton of movies, including some pretty obscure ones. Yeah. Um, and so uh, if you are into that sort of thing, you should really check out their um, their podcast. It might also be useful if you're, you know, I know Ken and I are in the heat of class prep right now. You might as well skim through there and see if there's, you know, if you've got that 
that day, you know, when you look at the, um, you look at your calendar and you're like, oh man, I really would like to get on the road early. Um, I'd like an excuse to show a movie in class. Um, or you look at the calendar and the night before you've got a particularly late night schedule and a particularly early morning class the day after, you know, I, I just encourage the, the least, the listener who's engaged in, um, these are just some tricks of the trade. All right. You know, (laughs) (laughs) take a skim here and see if there's anything on there. Um, like Encino man is a film they speak very highly of, which I have not seen. And you've not seen, yeah, that, and that is a classic. I would, I would highly recommend watching that and then listen to the review because the the movie itself is just, it's excellent. So yeah, yeah. Um, but we were discussing a movie that we cannot actually, in good faith, recommend. Um, and uh, it, I mean, we we don't need to talk about. It. We're about to talk about it in a minute. But I actually had a lot of fun doing this with um, with those folks yeah. over there. Um, I gather you did as well, Ken. Yes, I did. Yeah, it was lots of fun. Cool. And it's and it's a fun movie to poke fun at, basically. It is, yeah. Um, and I, I think, um, yeah. I mean, I think we can pretty much let the let the commentary speak for itself. Um, anything you want to impart with the listener before we uh, we let them? We should let the listener know, I guess, that we actually we we really appreciate the screens of Stone Age folks just just giving us their audio for this. Um, yeah. To uh, to let us post it to our feed as well. Hopefully, get some uh, get some attention um, to both uh, podcasts. And and at some point too, the listener will hear. Uh, the hosts of the Screen of the Stone Age join us on the New Brunswick Archaeology podcast, uh, and uh, and uh, we'll be completing the crossover. So it'll be we'll be doing the same thing. So this is uh, we've learned this is apparently kind of a podcaster thing where you go on your um, uh, you know a, a partner show or a friend's show or something like that, and and you essentially share the audio from each recording. So you go on each other's shows and then you rebroadcast those shows to sort of cross promote them. So. Uh, obviously, we would encourage you to listen to Screens of the Stone Age, and uh, and we're looking forward to having maybe some of their. Um, uh, it sounds like uh, uh, we we discovered that we 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 probably have uh, some overlap in our audiences, but uh, but maybe we'll be able to to kind of shade on either side of the Venn diagram with uh, with the two of these. So um, I think so. Tell true. your friends about it too, and uh, and uh, uh, yeah, and enjoy it. It's it's lots of fun. Yeah, and please shoot us a line, listener, if there's a particular sort of film-related thing you'd like us to try to get those folks on to discuss with us. That would um, that would be helpful. We um, we we are nothing if not uh, slaves to our listeners' demands. So, or um, if you have paleoanthropological questions or like a topic mm-hmm. that relates to you know um, um, human evolution or or something like that, because I think they'd be keen to talk about that. I think I can't remember, but there's somewhere in the show that we talked about a couple ideas about what we might bring them on for we did yeah so if any of those appeal to you listener send us an email and where would they send that email to ken uh new brunswick archaeology all one word archaeology spelled a-r-c-h-a-e-o-l-o-g-y new brunswick archaeology at gmail.com great and well listener um ken and i have just noticed that the transport plane that we left singapore in does not appear to have pilots and i see ken uh rummaging around uh, to open up a uh an inflatable raft and i think we're about to jump here so uh we'll let you enjoy this episode and um and we'll be floating through india in no time at all perfect thanks listener and enjoy the show enjoy the show um and he had scratched all these instructions on the wall of his cell that would uh would lead them to this uh this oh hold on I've disconnected myself there. <laughs> on our podcast when he disconnects himself i just i just take that opportunity to talk Welcome to Screens of the Stone Age, the podcast where scientists review movies about prehistoric people. My name is Josh Lindell. I'm a grad student studying Neanderthal teeth, and I'm here with... 
I'm Dr. Kimberly Plomp. I am a bioarchaeologist. I study the human skeleton, health and disease, and evolution. And I'm Dr. Ross Barnett, uh, interested in uh, paleogenetics and Ice Age megafauna. And today we have two guests on the podcast. This is where um, ordinarily Josh would say, you're a teacher in a Shia LaBeouf voice, but um, I'm an associate professor <laughs> of uh, archaeology at the University of New Brunswick, and I work on coastal hunter-gatherers in the Northeast. And uh, my name's Ken Holyoke, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Lethbridge, and I do sort of quarry and sourcing work on the East Coast in the Canadian Maritimes. Uh, and Gabe is hinting at the movie that we're reviewing today, which is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. This is the fourth one in the now quintilogy. Is that what you call it? I think we should still call it a trilogy, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's like the, the Douglas Adams trilogy in five parts. <laughs> uh, so we've done Raiders of the Lost Ark, and this is now the second Indiana Jones movie that we are doing. We've, we're doing them completely out of order, I guess. I don't know. Uh, let's just get into this one and start reviewing it because we're going to have a lot to say about it, I think. <laughs> uh, Ken or Gabe, would uh, one of you like to summarize this movie for us? I, I can kick us off here. Gabe, do you have a, uh, you can jump in with any highlights that maybe I miss. So. Excellent. This is going to be like our own podcast. Ken does most of the talking and I chime in once, once in a while. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I forgot to say, did you guys say that you host the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast? Do we get that in up front? Well, we do host it, yeah, yeah. We do host it, yes, yeah, yeah. So we've got a <laughs> an, uh, podcast, basically, where we talk about uh, New Brunswick archaeology, but really talk about the Canadian Maritimes and Maine, so an area that we call the Maritime Peninsula, and, and, and sort of broader Northeast North American archaeology as well. So we've sort of wrapped, I guess, our first season. Would that be yeah, fair? Yeah, I, I, I guess we're, we're well, yeah, we're in between seasons, but we're, we're going to be back in the end of August. Yeah, Gabe's been doing field work, and, and I... I have to defend my thesis in a week and a half, so I uh, so we've been we've been taking a pause for yeah. uh, <laughs> but um, four weeks, yeah, yeah. So so we open on a a desert landscape, um, and it and it's very you know it seems very Indiana Jones, got the nice typeface and everything like that, and it kind of casts out on on a bunch of uh, I don't are, would they be greasers or what are, what would be the term for the nineteen fifties cool kids in their modified roadster oh, i wasn't sure yeah greasers, greasers i guess yeah rockers i don't yeah. know they're uh, they're racing some um uh, some army bucks as they drive down the desert highway uh and uh you know kind of have a fun tete-a-tete and you know the all the cast uh, uh, kind of the old style whole credits are coming up on the screen as we roll through there and then the army vehicles pull off into a side road and head down another desert highway into a restricted area um, we quickly learn that these are not uh, American soldiers, that these are uh, Russians posing as Americans to break into this, uh, this facility. And uh, then as they sort of pull into, after they've killed the guards, they pull into this facility and, and uh, out pops Kate Blanchett in, in a, a really goofy wig and, uh, and an even goofier accent. Uh, and they pop the trunk and, and stuffed into the trunk are the newest member of the team, Mac, who uh, I've got some words about Mac. If I could just interrupt, I thought it was odd that Kate Blanchett, um, the, I thought she was Bob Dylan when she came out after doing that, <laughs> that, that, that movie she played Dylan in. And it was closer to that than anything she, she played before. But um, And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, I, I tried to keep track of how many times Mac said Jonesy. 
um, because that was that was definitely a, a sore spot for me. But uh, so Jonesy and and Mac hop out of the back of the car. They've been captured. Uh, I made a note that they were captured digging in the dirt in Mexico, and uh, they start getting grilled by Blanchett. Uh, and I can't remember specifically what it was. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let Gabe take off he- over here because I hear I think you guys can probably hear the background there. But yeah, so so basically they um they're looking for a particular box and there's all the usual threatening and this and so in this way I guess the movie's really about the curation crisis, right? It's in this lab and there's all these these crates <laughs> and they they threaten Indiana Jones at various points. It turns out um his friend. Uh, who keeps calling him Jonesy, Mac is going to double-cross him. And they find the box because the uh, mummified remains they're looking for are um, extremely magnetic. So they, they follow gunpowder and bullets and things that they throw in the air around to find the boxes. Um, then there's kind of this sort of classic Ch- India Jones chase-slash-fight scene. And then subsequent to that, it ends up, during these these battles, it turns out there's going to be a, a nuclear test. And so there's the... Somehow, Indiana Jones ends up being, along with someone he's fighting, kind of launched in this, this, I'm still not really sure what it was, some kind of a fast vehicle on a track that didn't really look like a train, uh, ends up in uh, a sample village that, or I guess we call it a town, I'm locked into anthropology mode here a little too much, sample town that is going to be <laughs> nuked um, in Area 51, and it's going to be uh, nuked as a sort of test case. This is the the famous um, fridge scene where Indiana Jones then climbs into a refrigerator and survives being blown up in this nuclear reaction. Uh, then he's interviewed by folks in the FBI, and we find out that he was uh, in OSS. Uh, there's a reference to an Air Force fiasco in 1947, and it becomes apparent that Colonel Spalco, who is uh, played by Bob Dylan slash Kate Blanchett, is interested in psychic research for paranormal purposes. That she's uh, sort of not in this particular ordinary, I suppose, um, espionage work. It turns out then that the FBI has also gone and searched Jones's office, and uh, Jones has been assigned a paid leave of absence for, uh, with it being paid by the bureau. Uh, his dean has negotiated this at great personal expense, uh, and he's been forced to resign. And so, I guess that's sort of statement about academic freedom here. Then we find mm-hmm. out the Shia LaBeouf uh, character, who's named uh, Mutt Williams, um, shows up, finds Jones, and and says that this fellow Harold Oxley, who Indiana Jones knew from, from his battle days of archaeology, um, had found a crystal skull um, and is going to be killed. Jones says it's a Mesoamerican deity skull. And so then there's another one of these kind of classic Indiana Jones fight scenes where you know, there's shooting, there's punching, there's running around, all these kinds of things. And um, then he and uh, Charlie Wolf are sort of on the run, and they're going to spend the rest of the... There's a... Uh, sorry, I should add, there's a, there's a, it invokes an earlier Indiana Jones movie because there's a motorcycle. I guess, I guess the motorcycle is a key part of this, this, this theme. Shia LaBeouf, uh, and this becomes important later, is a motorcycle uh, mechanic and enthusiast, and he... Is a chase scene that involves a motorcycle. A motorcycle slides through the library in very dramatic fashion, coming to rest against a statue of uh, Marcus Brody. 
And at one point, V. Gordon Child gets a shout out in the in the library. It's my favorite line of the movie. If you want to be a good archaeologist, you got to get out in the field, or get out, <laughs> you got to get out of the library. <laughs> it's okay. And actually, having done work in this area, this might be time for you to pick up the uh, pick up the story because we're heading south into a into a region that that you've worked. Yeah. So the the pan the pan meso South American uh, trope of uh, somewhere below Mexico and below uh, uh, seems to all kind of merges together now as we proceed into the Amazon. And they arrive in, I believe it's in Brazil. Is that where they start their journey? Because uh, they need to find the Amazon River. And I, I'm, I'm having, I'm kind of spacing here on what the sort of first place that they go to is. They go to Peru, to the Nazca Lines, I think, first, don't they? Oh, yeah, that's right. And they fly over the Nazca Lines, which are all smashed together very closely. Um, so every one of the every one of the, the pictographs is, is highly visible within one screenshot, basically. And, um, and so they, they set out, and I think the uh, they do some research, and they figure out that they need to go to that. Is it the cemetery scene is the next... Uh, is the next spot that they go with uh, the guys kind of popping out and jumping very quickly back and forth um, because they need to find uh, Francisco de Oriana's grave, basically, where he's bu- uh, buried to uh, find this object that Oxley says need to get. Uh, or that they, That's what they did. They went to Oxley's, I guess it was a sanatorium or something like that, where he was being held because he had lost his mind. So uh, they find some instructions in Deoriana's, uh, or in uh, uh, Oxley's cell uh, that leads them to the cemetery with uh, lots of s- spooky people in it. And, uh, and then they do, you know, the, they've got skeletons in the, uh, uh, they come into a crypt, basically, and it's Deoriana and his crew. Uh, and they find him, uh, Deoriana himself, another magnetic uh, trope. And, you know, lo and behold, another crystal skull is revealed. Uh, this one with an elongated skull, uh, sort of an elongated cranium. And, uh, and then from there, they head to, what is the next? Uh, I'm, I'm not very good at this summary here. Um, <laughs> the, I, well, there's some sort of deforestation going on to, to make a road. Right, right, right yeah. So they, they meet up, up with the Russians again, yeah. And, um, and this sort of, and uh, this is the next sort of big chase scene where, uh, uh, so they are. They happen upon the camp where they finally find where Oxley is being held. Um, they're captured by the Russians, and uh, out walks Marion uh, as a the uh, Irina Spalko tries to threaten Jones with killing Mutt, um, which which Jones has absolutely no um, uh, doesn't make him. He doesn't flinch basically, and then she marches out. Marion who. Uh, is like in Indiana Jones. Where have you been? Uh, and then immediately goes over and hugs Mutt, uh, and we get the first indication that Mutt maybe is not just Mutt Williams. And uh, uh, so they kind of meet up with Oxley. Uh, Jones gets subjected to the mind meld with the uh, Crystal Skull, uh, which uh, tells him to return, which is what Oxley was kind of going on about. Um, not really sure what return is supposed to be, but they think it's that the skull needs to go back to where, uh, where it was originally found, um, to take, uh, there's some cosmic power that they're going to get from this, I think is kind of the, is the thinking that Spalko has. So they escape that, they end up in dry sand, not quicksand, and then they get the, in the second turncoat, uh, or second twist, uh, Mac 
gives them away again. Uh, Oxley kind of led the, the Russians back to them. So they're captured once again, and they set off through this the forest or the uh, the Amazon jungle with this giant cutting machine. And, uh, you know, back and forth, uh, this sort of physics-defying bag with a skull in it um, gets tossed around a bunch of times. Uh, there's the uh, a nice uh, a sword fight between Mutt and Iriana Spelko. Uh, there's a uh, um, the probably my least favorite scene of the movie where uh, Mutt goes Tarzan, swings through the jungle, uh, and then they they finally emerge and uh, uh, they run into some giant killer ants. And I can't remember what the name is that Indy gives them, but uh, they escape that. Um, Spalco's right hand man gets consumed by the ants. Um, and so it's just Indy and his gang, um, which includes Mac, who's made it clear that he was a double agent, so he's actually a good guy again. And uh, they make their way to the temple, which is actually El Dorado, or what is it? Akatar is what they call it in, in the movie. And uh, they finally make it there. And after going over a waterfall a couple of times, three times, actually, three waterfalls. Uh, and arrive in a temple uh, where they discover that the people in the temple, the um, the Uga, is that uh, the Uga, or is that what the the sort of tribe is that they refer to? Uh, this fictionalized um, Mayan, Aztec, Incan, possibly Egyptian group that uh, <laughs> <laughs> lots of lots of competing iconography in, in there. I think at one time, at one point, there's a there's an Aztec sundial uh, that they that Indy rolls over to access one of the tombs. Yeah, it's an aggregation site. It's made very clear. Actually, none of these temples were built by the Uga, or they, they were, but they uh, they only knew how to do it because they were visited by not aliens, not extraterrestrials, interdimensional beings, uh, and so the crystal skulls are the skulls of these interdimensional beings. Um, who sit in a consortium of 13 people, so a, a small council. And, uh, and then we enter into the last half, like dizzying half hour of uh, bad CGI, kind of uh, <laughs> the, uh, revealing a little bit too much, so leaving nothing to the imagination, uh, to the point that we, we end the movie with a, an actual spinning alien spaceship, a, a, you know, a UFO disc coming out of a temple, and uh, and and that knowledge was their treasure. It was uh, it was not uh, it was not gold. Uh, it was knowledge that uh, that they were talking about uh, the with El Dorado. And um, and yeah. And so our heroes, without Mac, who turned coat once again, uh, he gets sucked into the interdimensional portal. So we may see him in Indiana Jones six or something like that uh, as he gets zapped back out. Uh, and we, and then we close on a wedding. Uh, Indy and, and Marion get married, and and uh, Mutt tries to grab the hat. Uh, and uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg rightly anticipated that Shia LaBeouf would probably not be the best bet to replace uh, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, and they don't let him wear the hat. And as as those of you who have watched Dial of Destiny know, um, Mutt uh, Mutt is uh, is a victim of the uh, of the war in in uh, Vietnam. So sometime later um and then cue the cue the music i I, i'm sure i miss lots in there but uh, i I have lots of notes about specific (laughs) things that i (laughs) which i guess it's implicit that despite him discovering that indiana jones is his father that uh, he did not take indiana jones advice and go back to school and get an educational deferment he uh just continued preparing (laughs) motorcycles (laughs) sent over yeah 
Didn't have bone spurs. No. <laughs> so going into this movie, I've I've talked about before on this podcast about how I didn't grow up with Indiana Jones. I never saw any of them until I was an adult, so it had no uh, influence on me becoming an archaeologist. I must have seen all of them before this movie came out, though, in 2008. So I didn't have the buildup of Indiana Jones. Like, this movie didn't have to live up to anything for me, is what I'm saying, right? And for that reason, I feel like I've never really thought this was all all that bad a movie. Uh, In fact, it's it's much more in my wheelhouse than the other ones, because this we've got the Crystal Skulls, we've got uh, ancient aliens. That's way more my thing than biblical archaeology and like holy grails and uh, uh, what's the cup called? The Christian immortality Jesus cup. The holy grail. The holy, holy, yeah, yeah, holy yeah. grail. Did I say holy grail twice? <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant <laughs> and the Holy Grail. <laughs> but um, so yeah, in my mind, this movie is just a much more interesting movie. And then watching it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a really good movie. And then as we go through, it's like, eh, this isn't so great. And by the time you get to the end, it's like, this doesn't make any sense anymore. <laughs> so yeah. I, the, I've seen this movie three three times now, the, the at once under, you know, as prep for this podcast. And I, I was already taking archaeology, I think, when I saw it the first time. And I saw it in theaters. And for some reason... I think probably because I had a funny, you know, went out with friends, saw it. I had a kind of generally positive view of the movie the first time. And then watched it the second time and thought, oh, that's really pretty lousy. And that was how I felt about it this third time, too. Although I think um, other people have made the point that the movie, until the last, you know, I don't know, 40 minutes. I mean, really until the last chase scene with Shia LaBeouf fencing on on the front of a Jeep. It's not the worst movie I've ever seen. And it invokes the earlier Indiana Jones movies in some interesting ways. And I actually think the tempo and the soundtrack of this are better than the, the more recent Dial of Destiny movie. So, I mean, that would be kind of my defense of it. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it, I saw it in theaters and actually I distinctly remember, I saw this as a, a friend of mine and, and she and I were big Indiana Jones fans and both of us were immensely disappointed with it when we saw it in theaters. And I will, I, I'm actually kind of the opposite where I, I don't know if I've actually watched it again since I saw it in theaters. And I felt like having seen Dial of Destiny, this one felt much more in line with the original trilogy, minus the, the three scenes that I think if they could just totally eliminate them from the movie, it wouldn't change. So, you know, get rid of the fridge scene, get rid of the monkey swinging scene and don't reveal the spinning spaceship mm. at the end. I feel like you actually would have had a <laughs> a movie much very akin to the the original trilogy and and you and Gabe's right like the pacing is much more like the original trilogy. Like I don't know if you've seen Dial of Destiny, but the chase yeah. scene at the start is cranked up and like, you know, faster than anything that we've seen in in an Indiana Jones movie before. So mm. And the dialogue is also, I think, fraught in Dial of Destiny. The, the dialogue is, the tempo of it is also strange. Um, I, I defend the fridge scene, I think. I, I The fridge scene, to me, mm-hmm. I don't think is all that much different than, you know, Short Round and um, Indiana Jones and the other character in Temple of Doom jumping out of an airplane in an inflatable raft. True. Um, yeah. So I, I have some time <laughs> for that uh, in terms of the, the fitting canonically in the whole, yeah. the I, whole I, I, uh, series. I, re- I read apparently Lucas tried to defend the the legitimacy of surviving a, a nuclear blast in a refrigerator and presented a bunch of research that he had done to Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to sort of chime in and say I, I, I kind of agree with Ken. So 
one of the first films I remember seeing in the cinema as a kid was uh, Holy Grail, which had like a left a big impression because that's everyone will agree that's a great uh, Indiana Jones film. And then I also was quite psyched and went to see this Crystal Skull in the cinema in 2008. And it was, I think, the last film I saw in the cinema uh, before my eldest daughter was born. So there was a lot riding on it. And it, I remember like <laughs> watching it. And in the first kind of half hour, thinking, this is, this is okay. This is good. And then just going, trying to convince myself towards the end, I'm having a good time. I'm having a good time. But I really wasn't. Um, because it just kind of... <laughs> falls apart and you know there are i haven't watched it since then this is only the second time i've watched it uh, and so there are kind of good parts in it but you know it's it's like the curate's egg you know it's good in parts but overall it's a stinker i think and it just you know there's so much that's that's just you can't even it kind of defines its own internal logic and doesn't make sense in a in any kind of real world setting it's like right from the beginning which i'm sure we'll go into in a minute, but I just found it really disappointing, uh, and especially now having watched the Dial of Destiny, which, which as you guys have pointed out, has a very different pacing. But I actually think it works a lot better than than Crystal Skull because because of that, it, it kind of leans into uh, Indiana Jones as this kind of aging academic who's really you know not up to adventuring anymore, and and I thought that made it much more interesting. Whereas it's only really played for laughs in in Crystal Skull, despite him being you know, in his late 60s when he was doing it. And they, they, they kind of, they just tried to pick it up where he, where he left off and hinted at some kind of adventures, but but not in a very interesting way. Yeah. Mm. I think Shia LaBeouf was the worst part. I think he ruined the movie. <laughs> I think if they had had a different actor, it would have been better. Absolutely. He's just not convincing as a, as a bad dude. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I had a note in my, I have a note in here somewhere that, uh, that, that basically... This would be an okay movie, even if they just got rid of Mutt and and uh, and Mac. Um, yeah, I, 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 like Mac. Just I I I don't know what it was about that character. I think it was that he said Jonesy about like seventy times during the movie, uh, and yeah. and they were like, "Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy?" And nobody cared. Yeah, yeah. and he does nothing in the movie. I mean, it, it, all of his double crossing means Jack Squat. I mean, there's absolutely no reason mm-hmm. for him to be in the film. He does absolutely nothing. Like yeah. they, they capture Indiana Jones, and he's totally irrelevant to the kind of progression of the of the plot. Well, I had also forgotten that the the alien with the crystal skull that they find in Area Fifty One is only seen again once in the movie, and it's for Spalco to cut the head open and show Indiana Jones that there's a crystal skull in there, and that that alien plays no mm. role in the rest of the movie, <laughs> and and it's not clear. Yeah how it fits into the table of 13 aliens at the end. Cause only one of them's missing their skull. So yeah, it just wasn't one of the council. I guess so. One of the common, one of the common aliens. Well, I, I think one of the other problems is just that no one, that no one is convincingly evil in this movie as part of the problem. Right. I mean, is, is that you, sort of in the other movies, you usually understand what the motivations are and, and it's, you know, I guess it's, in that way, it's sort of a Cold War movie. It's kind of unclear, like what the immediate goals are. But but you know, once she has this psychic power, what is she trying to accomplish exactly? It's not really clear. Well, it sounds like actually there. I I put a note here that um, uh, the the strategy is actually very reminiscent of recent uh, Russian policy, in that it's to place our thoughts into the minds of your leaders, so much so that you won't know it's happening. Mm. 
Which yeah. I, I, I thought was sort of a haunting line. <laughs> yeah, it also like is, is almost one of those like all oh, your base are belong to us lines. You have to read it twice to kind of figure out what it means. <laughs> so we always start off after summarizing the movie with nitpicking scientific and historical inaccuracies. Uh, I don't think we're going to be able to do that exhaustively in this movie. The thing about these like big blockbuster movies is that the IMD pa- IMD the IMDb pages have a long list of goofs and anachronisms and like we we couldn't even go through all of them. So like we can get out of the way like the vehicles, the airplanes are all from the wrong years, the maps have the wrong geographies, the the wrong borders on them. There are several typefaces used on some of the documents in the movie that weren't invented in 1957. Uh, my favorite one on IMDb is uh, regarding those ants that you talked about. It just says, army ants aren't remotely how they're depicted in the movie. They can't carry people. <laughs> That's some pissed off entomologist at three o'clock in the morning who's <laughs> just locked in IMDb. <laughs> Oh, jeez. On Bugs Bugs of the Screen or whatever his podcast is. <laughs> uh, so what what inaccuracies have we taken in our notes that we feel are worth uh, commenting on in this podcast? Well, c- can I vent first? Would that be okay? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm kind of on board with these guys, but I wasn't too bothered by the fridge incident, um, which everyone kind of focuses on, because it clearly says it's lead-lined, so obviously it's radiation-proof. <laughs> but you have to remember as well that Indy's uh, drunk from the crop, cup of Christ, so he's sort of quasi-immortal. So the oh, fact yeah. that he doesn't end up as essentially soup after being kind of blasted at the speed of sound through the Nevada atmosphere, you know, that's that's magic. You don't got to explain shit. But yeah, other <laughs> things that really annoyed me I took notes on uh, were, for a start, when they're in the the warehouse, which is the same warehouse as is at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they store the Ark of the Covenant, and they're trying to find the intensely magnetic area at Roswell Space Crash Alien, and they use gunpowder, but gunpowder is not magnetic. Yeah, I made a note of that. I, I wrote, a, "Is lead magnetic?" <laughs> no, I don't. No, it's not. And also, gold's not magnetic either. And that's later on when they're in Oriana's uh, kind of grave. They talk about that, and you know. It's just, it's really stupid. So they know it's intensely magnetic, but they brought along metal crowbars to open it up with. And then, you know, and they've got metal knives and stuff. I mean, (laughs) it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, My notes on this are fucking magnets. How do they work? (laughs) Well, apparently a cloth, apparently a cloth stops the magnetism. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Yeah. But no, this, it's not magnetism because they say it attracts gold. So it it just attracts metal mysteriously. It's not actually magnetism. But Mm. like in the scene in the warehouse, Indy doesn't know that. He thinks it's magnetic. So he asks for gunpowder and lead pellets, which neither of which are magnetic, uh, which worked, but it shouldn't have worked because he thought it was magnetic. But also, like, there's there's major, like, inconsistencies in how this magnetism works, yeah. because sometimes they're attracted to metal, but sometimes they're surrounded in guns and vehicles, and they're not, don't seem to be affected. And um, just the whole concept that these aliens have magnetic skeletons, and somehow they've amassed a collection of metal artifacts from around the world, how... How did they do that without just having this stuff stuck to them 
as they're moving around constantly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that might be how they do it. He's very clear that they're, yeah. they're collectors, they're archaeologists, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They didn't intentionally collect this room full of artifacts. They just, everywhere they, they go, like... they come back covered in metal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I certainly walked into a, you know, like a, a, a collector from, from, from the, say, the coast of Maine and gone into their office and thought, well, they must be, you know, magnetic for, for Chert, you know? It's like, yeah. <laughs> it could be too, you know, Disney owns all these uh, different properties now, and this is how they plant the seeds of Magneto appearing in the in the Marvel movies is that uh, he was actually one of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, interdimensional beings that appeared in the Indiana Jones movies and you can get a crossover in the future. Well, if anybody's listening now, they're going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, that you know that that was annoying. But there's there's more things that have annoyed me in this as well, which I can go on with. Um, I think Ken already mentioned that they've, they've sort of smooshed all the Nazca lines together, all these incredible uh, kind of Peruvian geoglyphs, uh, of the, you know the hummingbird and the condor and the monkey and and all these kind of amazing things, which are spread out over like you know hundreds of miles, but they're all they all have to be in one sort of screenshot. And yeah, mm. they're not really relevant to the plot particularly. They're just a kind of marking spot i don't know kind of fed into eric von daniken style ancient aliens guff yep. about how they can only be seen from the air blah 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 one thing that else that really annoyed me i'm just kind of rattling through these because there's so many um but there's a bit when they're in the in the jungle and uh shia labeouf gets a scorpion on him and indiana says that it's going to bite him uh, you know you don't have to be a phd biologist to know that scorpions don't bite they sting in their tail i mean it really pisses me off when someone who's supposed to be educated like indiana jones says something stupid like that and the same thing happens in temple of doom which i watched again recently where they've got giant fruit bats flying over uh, the jungle and he calls them giant vampire bats and then that's just like i can't do it i can't i can't listen to that i can't respect somebody that would mistake fruit bats for vampire bats Russ, you got to be careful because we've got 59 episodes of us talking uh, like unscripted and we're going to have stuff in there that someone's going to nitpick where we say the wrong word. For example, I'm I'm editing something Bring for on. YouTube, um, which I don't know if it'll be up by the time uh, this episode comes out. But we uh, recently looked at the video game Skyrim. And in the course of editing it, both you and I keep calling the deer antlers horns. And I know someone's going to be in oh. the comments saying, deer don't have horns, they have antlers. Well, they can fight us. <laughs> that, that's, that's fine. Can I just chime in on the scorpion for a minute? The, I, I have this problem when I watch this, um, this movie. So I, I did my, uh, my graduate work in Connecticut, a lot of it, and uh, where Lyme disease is a big thing, right? So that's a big killer monster there. But also, the, for, for reasons that I'm sure he's always appreciated, my, my supervisor actually looks a little bit like uh, Harrison Ford and dresses a little bit like him. Um, Ken knows who I'm talking about here. And, and also maybe engages in some of the lifestyle um, as well. And uh, his advice about ticks was always that the ones you could see aren't the ones with Lyme disease. And so once I'd gotten into that headspace, I had a hard time getting out of it as the movie progressed. This was, this was my old professor. <laughs> yeah, I, I made, so uh, I made a couple notes about the, the Mitchell Hedges skull, which is actually a real thing. <laughs> Um, and, uh, uh, a funny thing that I found though is yeah. apparently Belize sued Lucasfilm over the misuse of, it was that they, they hadn't requested. So Belize was trying to essentially get money for a proven fake, uh, skull, crystal skull 
because it was being used by Lucasfilm, its its image and 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 it must the the Hedges family must have something to do with the Belizean government. Um, I, I didn't quite I, I saw the byline about it. I, did, I guess I didn't investigate it a whole lot, but uh, um, it, it the the Mitchell Hedges skull is a real thing that was found. It's a for, real forgery. Um, like a lot of these crystal skulls were, but, uh, uh, it, it, when they, they, there's a few things that they sort of dust throughout, like Akator is a real place, but it's not, um, or it's rumored to have been, but it's conflated with El Dorado. It's Akator, I think was something else. It was purported to be an underground city somewhere in the Amazon jungle that's never been found, but, uh, but it's not what they call, uh, El Dorado basically. Uh, yeah. Does anybody else know, uh, more about the the background behind these crystal skulls because uh i do know a fair bit about the crystal skulls it's very interesting stuff mm. especially the the mitchell hedges skull is the interesting one it's in the british museum isn't it i think the the mitchell hedges skull the pseudo-archaeology podcast does one too i think uh the uh british museum skull is just called the british museum skull it's oh, right. uh different from the mitchell hedges skull but they they reference both of these uh, when Indiana Jones first meets Mutt and he tells him about the skull, he uh, he mentions the Mitchell Hedges skull and Indiana Jones says, I saw one like it in the British Museum. Mm. So he's referring to the British Museum skull there. There are a handful of others. There's one, uh, there's a Paris skull in, I can't remember which uh, Paris museum. And there's another one. I think there's three that are available in museums. The Mitchell Hedges skull is uh, privately held and uh, it was found allegedly by Anna Mitchell Hedges, who's the daughter of F.A. Mitchell Hedges, who was uh, a quote-unquote archaeologist at the time, which was more of an adventurer and an author. And it was found in Belize, which at the time was called, it was quote-unquote found in Belize, which at the time was British Honduras. And so allegedly, his daughter, Anna Mitchell Hedges, found it in 1924, except there's no record of it being found at the site in 1924 by F.A. Mitchell Hedges or by anybody else who worked at the site or any of the documentation from this archaeological site. And as we know, archaeologists take a lot of documentation, so if it was found there, it should be recorded. Uh, There's also no evidence from anybody who worked at that site that Anna Mitchell Hedges was actually at the site in 1924 when it was allegedly found. And uh, so after F.A. Mitchell Hedges died in 1959, I think, uh, his daughter, Anna, kept the skull and she kept it until her death in the early 2000s. And now her husband uh, still owns the skull. So it's privately held. It's not available for scientific study uh, unless he's died recently. I'm not sure. He must be getting pretty old. But um, Anna Mitchell Hedges maintained that it had paranormal abilities throughout her entire life and occasionally she would take it on tour and charge admission and she claimed uh the the lore behind it was that it was a mayan skull and that some mayan priest used it for rituals uh and it's sometimes called the skull of doom because it was like supposed to like mark people for death and then they died anna mitchell hedges even claimed that she actually killed somebody with it somehow i don't know how you make a claim that you murdered somebody and think you can just get away with that Uh, But so the interesting thing about this skull is that there is a paper trail for this skull. There's no record of it uh, being found in 1924, which is when they claim to have discovered it. Uh, There's no record of Anna or F.A. Mitchell Hedges talking about it before 1943. 
But there is a record of it going back to 1933 when it was known as the Bernie Skull, I think, if I wrote that correctly, because it was in the possession of a Sidney Bernie uh, who tried to sell it to some museums and eventually sold it through a Sotheby's auction to F.A. Mitchell Hedges <laughs> in 1943. Uh, so he clearly didn't dig up this skull in 1924. There's receipts. He bought it in 1943. You've literally got the receipts. Yeah, I don't know if there's a receipt, <laughs> but there's... Uh, I have a webpage open. There is literally uh, like a posting from Sotheby's auction with like a picture of the skull for sale. <laughs> so uh, so we, we can't study this one scientifically because it's still privately held. And her, her husband, who owns the skull still, still claims it has paranormal abilities, even though we know it was bought from uh, an auction house. Uh, but all the other skulls, the British skull and the Paris skull, have been subjected to scientific analysis. And we can tell from them that they were made, well, from like scanning electron microscopy, we can tell they were made with modern, uh, like modern, like 18, late 1800s rotary tools using modern abrasives like diamond dust or other things like this. Uh, and we can tell the, uh, the provenance or provenience, I can't remember which one it would be in this case, of the, um, the quartz. Uh, it, uh, of all these skulls, it comes from uh, a, a Brazilian source because of the chemical makeup. That's the only place it could have come from. And we also can tell that uh, this type of quartz was being used a lot in a very specific town in Germany where they were very crafted, uh, very, very skilled at uh, quartz craftsmanship, quartz uh, carving or whatever you'd say, quartz working. And so it's very likely that all these skulls were sourced from Brazilian quartz and were made in one specific town in Germany between the late 1800s and the early 1900s, and then sort of dispersed through art collections where eventually, uh, I think the British skull was the uh, first one to gain notoriety as allegedly being a Mesoamerican or Mayan or Aztec artifact. And then once you have that one, everybody else has a copycat and they're like, oh, I also have a mysterious Aztec artifact. Uh, but they're all uh, late 1800s, uh, not forgeries initially, because we don't know why they were initially carved, uh, but maybe some of the later ones were. So that's the crystal skulls. They're real, but they're not archaeological. If I may, though, I mean, if these are interdimensional beings... They may be smart enough mm. to self-forgery them their skulls to you know create this story so that you can't actually know their true secrets. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, that sounds likely. <laughs> well, the Mitchell Hedges skull has a separate uh, jaw and cranium, but all mm. the rest of them are just one piece. So if they were uh, real, real interdimensional beings, then they would have had uh, immovable jaws. Still some concerns about sourcing across the universe, too. <laughs> Maybe on one of their trips, their buddy died and they needed some extra cash to get back home, so he sold their skull to Southern Bees. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> do, do any of them have the elongated skull, like in uh, in the movie? No. Yeah, okay. I just Googled, no. They're conflating two things. So the elongated skull, that's uh, a form of artificial cranial deformation, yep. which is real and very common. common. Like, mm -hmm. it's found in every continent on Earth. So people have been doing that for a long time. Uh, does anybody know much about head binding or cranial elongation? 
Um, so the Nazca do do that with that shape of cranium too, and they have um, a head cult, like a head of religion. The head represents fertility, I think, and like, um, oh, now I don't remember something from undergrad. But yeah, they do. They did do that with the deformation of the cranium, intentional modification. Do we see that in ancient Egypt as well? I know, like King Tut had a weirdly shaped head, but was that uh, just like genetic? From I think that's uh, just from all the incest. <laughs> that's say, that, that's <laughs> inbreeding. Yeah. yeah, it's like the the Habsburg chin. Hmm. <laughs> but there is so there's your you can have cranial modifications. You can have intentional modification, like the Nazca, where there's something symbolic about it, and they want their cranium to be that shape. And then you can have unintentional but still acquired modification just by accident and so i think in egypt that's what happened often is you um infants were like swaddled down Mm -hmm. and they had a binding around their head to hold them down in place and then that actually caused cranial modification yeah people people forget how easy it is to modify modify the skull like yeah they're very kids today if you leave them lying on their on their back for too long then their their skull kind of gets flattened at the back. Gets flat. Yeah, yeah my, my son had a very yeah. expensive, very special pillow that he had to sleep on because he had a, a very flat <laughs> back of his head. <laughs> so it, I believe, if I remember correctly, in Egypt, it would be that. And so they had the flat back of the head because the head was on it. And then they also had a strap around the forehead holding that child down. And it was thought to be good practice because it kept the child safely in bed, right? But then you'd have this flat on the front, flat on the back, cranial shape. So there's some that are symbolic and ritualistic, and then there's some that are just bad parenting. Uh, that's called uh, <laughs> cradle boarding, right? Cradle boarding, yeah. One, one, so one of the things I've heard you guys uh, kind of make comment on uh, in, in a number of the movies is the Bechdel movie test about the you know women, yes. women in movies. And, and uh, so while I was watching this, I was trying to keep track of, of when Kate Blanchett and, and – uh, uh, and Marion, uh, I heard uh, geez, her name is slipping me right now. Um, when they were sharing a screen together, when Arena and and Kate Blanche and uh, uh, and Marion were in the same scene, there was only a couple scenes where they're actually together, but there are a couple scenes where they're in the same scene. And <laughs> there's a, a website that I guess like tracks the Bechdel test in in all these different movies. And uh, somebody makes an argument it actually passed the second test, which is that they talk to each other because in the scene where, where Irina is on the hood of the Jeep and spins the uh, machine gun towards Marion, she yells, ah, at her. And and so uh, they're not talking about, they're also not talking about a man in that scene and they're communicating. So uh, there's one person that argues that they actually passed the test because they communicated to one another. uh... Oh, geez. But I think they are basically the only two women in the movie. Yeah, I, we I don't know the so. gender uh, of the the uh, interdimensional beings. That's true, That's or fair. even if they have gender. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although they do look very anthropoid in terms of their crystal skeleton, which is always really annoying as a biologist to sort of see that they essentially have a classic mammalian skeleton uh, with just a few kind of tweaks. Mm-hmm. Well, it means you won't be out of work when when our alien overlords come for us. You'll, you'll be useful to them. <laughs> have we uh talked about this before why this is why like the the stereotypical gray aliens are impossible like if if aliens come to earth they're not going to have a humanoid body shape just because of the way evolution works Mm -hmm. like that tetrapod mammal or tetrapod uh 
animal skeleton with four limbs and a head at one end has literally only evolved once on the entire history of Earth. And like the vast majority of living things are nothing like that, that shape. Yeah. Uh, so the idea that the intelligent species that uh, develop space travel on another planet is going to be shaped exactly like humans is absolutely impossible. Like it's just massive hubris on on our part that uh, yeah they're going to look like us. But yeah, I mean, even just looking at life on Earth, you know, bilateral symmetry is not all that common. You've got your you know your your starfish and your echinoderms, all these things which have radial symmetry, and there's there's some really nice sci-fi books. Um, Harry Turtledove does. Uh, some great ones where his aliens who are Martians set in an alternative universe, but they have, uh, I think it's sevenfold radial symmetry as well. So they don't look anything like um, humans and that makes them slightly more believable. And you've seen that in other kind of recent films like Arrival where the yeah. the aliens are, are kind of quite uh, unearthly, although they do look like big squids. So who knows? <laughs> I mean, the, the problem with that in this movie is that there'd have to be another 30 minutes of exposition while Indiana Jones tried to explain that to Shia LaBeouf, which would be <laughs> pretty intolerable. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? They, they may have had those scenes in there and they just decided to get rid of it. That's uh, yeah. Yeah. too much beef. Yeah. Well, you mentioned how they're not aliens, they're interdimensional beings. And I think that this is one of the silliest things I've ever heard of in filmmaking because... Uh, Steven Spielberg didn't want to do another Alien movie because he felt he'd already done too many. He did E.T. and he did um, Close, Close Encounters. Encounters. And he didn't want to be associated with more Alien movies. And when apparently this the, this uh, script goes way back to like 1992 is when they started working on this. So they were like working this over for a long time. And somehow George Lucas telling... Um, Steven Spielberg, they're not aliens, they're interdimensional beings, even though you have Area 51 and you have Roswell, New Mexico, and they look like gray aliens and they have a flying saucer at the end. And <laughs> they have like all of these things, they're clearly gray aliens. But he just says, oh, no, they're not aliens, they're interdimensional beings. And uh, Steven Spielberg's like, yeah, okay, this is not an alien movie. This is a interdimensional being movie. I'm fine with that. Yeah. But it's really annoying because the, there's absolutely no explanation of how they know that. Like, it just, the characters say that and then everyone's like, oh, okay, that's what they are. I mean, the skull talks. Yeah, Ox knows everything because the skull is psychic. That's why he went crazy because he knew too much, too much knowledge. He he read the Elder Scroll to to give you a reference that you don't get and i don't know if ken or gabe get <laughs> yeah uh, i think we're too old for it and as i think probably one of the best lines in the film which is one that has stuck with me since i saw it in 2008 where uh jim broadbent who plays the dean uh says to indy uh we're at an age where life stops giving us things and starts taking them away and that that's <laughs> uh i didn't i didn't remember that it was from this film but it's one that stayed with me since then clearly as probably the oldest amongst us, uh, that resonates with me. And Indy becomes the dean at the end. Well, like the, he becomes, mm. I believe what's called on Twitter, an ass dean. He's the associate dean. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he's certainly an ass. Dean Lett. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Which does not appear to last, I mean, since we find out he's at, you know, Hunter College, which makes you wonder if he got promoted up and over, you know? So... The because because in Dial of Destiny there's some interdimensional travel as well, right? And so, you know, not to jump movies here, but there is uh, there's a a throughput between these two that uh, uh, you know one one involves 
interdimensional beings, and the other one is jumping back in time. But, uh, and I, I don't know if that was intentional. Probably not at all. Actually, it's. I don't think. I don't know how much Lucas and Spielberg were even involved in Dial of Destiny, but no, Sp- Spielberg doesn't. It's the first one he's not directed. I think. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'm just going back to what you were saying, um, Ross. I thought one of the interesting things about the series, actually, because I was also struck by that they're drinking wine at Indiana Jones's house or apartment or whatever. It is interesting that there's, I think in each of the movies, there's a scene that's sort of like that, right? Like a thoughtful scene at Indiana Jones's apartment. You know, maybe it's just mm-hmm. been ransacked. Maybe he's angry about the Beatles. Maybe he's um, <laughs> uh, going to go find his father. Maybe, you know, but but I do think that in, in that, I think that's one of the good things about this movie is that it, it, it does, it's, it's more canonical in some ways than it could have been. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably a deliberate act on their part because you know it's what uh, nearly twenty years, like nineteen years since the the previous one. So they they've got to kind of ramp up the the callbacks um, just to to kind of keep the the faithful um, coming along to it. Yeah. And you know, as as one of those faithful, I went along to it and it's like, oh yeah, I recognize that. But that's like that other bit from oh, there's the the Ark of the Covenant. But yeah, I think it, it kind of relied on that maybe a bit too much without adding too much that was sensible or coherent. Yeah, they just kept focusing on the him grabbing his hat in the last minute or Yeah. Like they redid that kind of over and over in this movie, right? Yeah. And you know, they have all the kind of classics like uh, a a booby trapped uh underground complex kind of stuff calling back to, you know, all of them essentially have that. But here it doesn't make any sense because the whole thing is that the the interdimensional beings want the skull to be returned. That's that's what they're saying. They want it to be returned. The people mm. that they were interacting with knew that it had to be returned. Why the hell they kind of made it so difficult to return it? But al- mm. also, how did the skull get out of the room? That was the that was the part you needed the skull to open the room. So how did they get into <laughs> the room to get the skull in the first place? And like, how did Dioriana, who I'm guessing was the person who removed the skull? Number one, how did he get it off of the off of the rest of the body? Because presumably mm. they were alive in their hive mind thing when he arrived. And then how did he get into that room that requires you place a skull upside down to open the door? Uh, maybe it's just a magnetic lock and he could just use a big magnet. <laughs> <laughs> I was just reading something because uh, there's a few mummies in this movie, which maybe we can touch on. Uh, but I was reading a little bit about Peruvian mummies and... I should have read it more closely now that I'm talking about it. But uh, one of the things I read was about how these early Spanish conquistadors, when they were discovering these mummies in Peru, um, they had a very strange reverence for them because, of course, they looted them and they stole all the valuables on them. But at the same time, they were sort of afraid of them because it was clearly some sort of important, powerful thing. And so out of respect for the mummies that they were looting, they took off their shoes when they walked into the room or the cave or wherever these mummies were to steal all their stuff. So uh, uh, I wouldn't put it past these conquistadors to, you know, close the door behind them after stealing (laughs) the skull. (laughs) There's also kind of a... a, So uh, probably the darkest movie or moment in the movie and probably maybe the darkest moment in all of the movies is the sort of casual mass slaughter of the indigenous group guarding the temple at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, which is maybe, hark, you know, sort of uh, uh, like drawing attention to 
sort of this sort of repeated colonialism subjected to these this group that's protecting this temple. But it's like they pan across the Russians just sort of like mass slaughtering this this group of indigenous caricatures that had emerged from the uh, had emerged from the temple, basically, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, th- that it was a, a really odd throwaway and seemed really kind of out of step with like any other previous, you know, like, I mean, there's always sort of a little, a little bit of collateral damage, I think, uh, in, in these movies to the, the locals, but, uh, uh, most of the time the, the deaths are, are, you know, evil Nazis or something like that. Yeah. It was really jarring. Yeah. It was like a real kind of was... um, emotional tone shift yeah uh, when they cut to that yeah. scene i just thought that there would be more commentary on it after like it would be they'd make a point with it but it didn't mm. they didn't seem to yeah i think that's also part of the problem is that in the other movies there's at least an immediacy of the evil that is supposedly being fought right whether or not it's effective or not you can sort of you know without too aggressively invoking you know just war theory or whatever that indiana jones is that it's an immediate threat from the nazis that jones is addressing right yeah. Um, so whether he's successful or not, you know, people get injured clearly when he's doing this in, you know, I can't remember, various Mideast villages and cities and such. But you sort of understand why he's doing it. It's a little less clear. He's sort of fighting this vague psychological threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The the biggest crime of this movie is the way it treats indigenous people and basically all of the Americas from Mexico to, you know, South America, like you already said, it conflates basically everything south of the United States as Mexico. Yeah, you know, they're in Peru <laughs> and culturally and like the music playing there. It's this feels more like Mexico, right? Like they're not very similar countries apart from the language. And you have two encounters with indigenous people pr- trying to protect a site. And it seems like the movie wants you to think the right thing to do is to kill them to get into the site. Yep. Uh, the first case is when they're at uh, Cusco at the Nazca lines, that when they're grave robbing, there is Mutt reads a sign that says grave robbers will be shot. And Indiana Jones says, good thing we're not grave robbers and throws them a shovel. But they were intact. They were, if I'm not mistaken, I might be misremembering, but they were attacked by indigenous people there as well, mm-hmm. who crawl around like creepy spiders because they're not humans you know they're npcs in this video game they're non-player characters Mm -hmm. and instead of being like oh we shouldn't be grave robbing the correct thing to do is to shoot a blow dart backwards through the tube into the guy's mouth and kill him which uh, it has been pointed out a thousand times that would not the pointy part wouldn't hit him so why would it kill him doesn't make any sense but give him a tickly throat (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. but they just kill the indigenous people there who are trying to stop them from grave robbing. And that's a good thing. And then again, we have the, the larger group of indigenous people at the, uh, Amazonian, uh, temple, uh, who they don't personally kill, but they still get killed. And they're, they're again, not characters. They're NPCs. They're just an obstacle for the heroes to get through. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we, we can see this in the languages as well. So, their uh the the letter that they the cryptic letter they get from ox is written in an extinct language uh which he describes as being called uh koyoma which is a real language it has a wikipedia page that has one sentence explaining that it belongs to the witoten language family and then a following paragraph talking about its use in the indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull so i can't tell you anything about it but it's a real extinct language from peru and colombia uh, which is great, except that he says in order to figure out how to read it, he has to walk it through Mayan, which is a language family from Mexico, 
uh, and Central America, which is thousands of kilometers from Peru, and there is no connection, as far as I know, between Mayan, the Mayan language families and the Witoten language families. So it doesn't make any sense to me why he thinks he can use his n- knowledge of Mayan to translate uh, the Koyoma language. He also is speaking Quechua in um, Peru, uh, in the city, uh, which again is a real uh, indigenous language from Peru. But he says he learned that because he ran with Pancho Villa uh, and some of his men spoke Quechua, which again, Pancho Villa is uh, from the Mexican Revolution. So it's unclear why indigenous Peruvians were running with Pancho Villa speaking Quechua for him to have learned it then. I don't want to... I, I do want to interrupt just for a second. The, it, and that, the Pancho Villa thing really made me think that Ken's been complaining a lot about finishing his dissertation. He keeps telling me he's got family commitments <laughs> or something like this. But he wasn't running with Pancho Villa, you know, with the draft <laughs> in his saddlebags. So. <laughs> I felt like one of the things that was missing from the end of the movie, like I, I'm kind of jumping back here to, um, to what Ross was talking about, sort of some of the callbacks to the previous movies. I felt like the end scene... Uh, of of the wedding, I kept waiting for something to sort of motivate the action once again, and that like you know somebody would show up uh, at the wedding with like some object, and that the the movie should should have ended with Marion sort of like Indy, you know, sort of kind of call back to like <laughs> yeah. something that would have been a little bit more like it, it just seemed too soft. I, I don't mm. know why it just it kind of yeah. lacked like you know like Last Crusade ends with that like you know they literally ride off into the sunset right you know and and uh, Temple of yeah. Doom you know it's kind of a Bond like sort of James Bondian end where he kind of gets the girl and uh, but it, I just felt like this one kind of I don't know it was it was way too delicate in the way it ended. Well, it really mm. should have been like The Graduate I think where Dustin Hoffman appears and is, is shaking the <laughs> shaking the panel in the back and, and then runs off and it turns out that Dustin Hoffman is a competing archaeologist who's always had a real soft spot for Mary and has actually been sitting on some classes at Berkeley but just came down to Peru, you know. <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah. That would have been um, I, I think, though, in my opinion, that we, we actually kind of touched on. So I, I spent too much time trying to think about why this movie is and, and is more annoying, despite the supernatural elements, than than the other ones, right? And so I think on the when you guys did was it Last Crusade that you reviewed or, or Raiders? I can't remember. We did Raiders. Raiders, yeah. You, you talked about the kind of supernatural elements of that movie, right? And and I don't find them maybe as annoying as I think particularly particularly you did um josh but the i think one of the things about all the first three movies um is that they at least make some internal coherence right and so the the closest i could actually come to was this idea that what the first three movies are really about is that they're about the ontological turn in anthropology and so if you've got this kind of idea right and this i don't know if this is going to make any sense or not this is what i this is what i dreamt up uh, this morning in the shower was that, you know, the, the sort of famous, like, debate about whether ontology is just another word for culture um, hinged on, everyone was talking about the newer twins, right? That if we think about, you know, Pritchard's famously said, oh, you know, okay, the, the newer think that twins are birds, right? But a lot of the ontological turn folks said, well, the, the mistake we're making is we're saying that the newer think uh, twins are birds, and obviously, what's interesting about that is that they're wrong. That there's this objective reality, <laughs> which is incorrect. But maybe it would be more interesting if the way we try to approach the newer is to think about 
well, how can we imagine a cultural system in which it makes sense? And in fact, the newer twins actually are birds, right? And so in a certain way, I think, um, you know, if you, yeah, the, the Kalima thing is a little far-fetched, right? But if you imagine what that movie is, is actually bringing Indiana Jones to try to discover a cultural system in which the whole Kalima thing works. I think those uh, movies make some sense on that merit. I think even actually Dial of Destiny makes a little bit of sense on that merit. I think this one doesn't because the whole premise is that, well, they weren't sophisticated enough to have um, irrigation. So they had to be aliens, right? So rather than Mm. having that really anthropological experience that Indiana Jones is going through, despite all the problems to discover why Kalima works or that the grail, in fact, can give you eternal life um, or or whatever, um, there's none of that in this movie. There's none of that realignment of the cultural system. So that's my operating theory on on the problem here. That's an interesting take. I mm-hmm. really like that. But yeah. so I was hoping because I know you guys are archaeologists. We are, I mean, we're more paleoanthropology, paleontology focused here. So I'm trying to go back to my undergrad archaeology theory. There is a couple of lines which uh, you already touched on, Ken, that uh, I feel like we could talk about for a long time. So when they're sliding on the motorcycle through the library... <laughs> Uh, before he says, if you want to be a good archaeologist, you got to get out of the library. Uh, the student asks him, uh, he says he has a question about Hargrove's normative culture model. And he says to forget Hargrove, read Vergordon Child on Diffusionism. And this made me realize that we're actually at a pretty interesting point in archaeology in 1957, right yeah. in this movie, because this is mm-hmm. where we have the shift from the uh, culture historical uh, period of archaeology to the processual period of archaeology, uh, which uh, I don't know how much our listeners know about archaeology. Probably most of our listeners don't know much about archaeology theory. So we have like over time, the school, like the field of archaeology has had paradigm shifts where our perspective has changed. And uh, I wonder if either of you wanted to sort of expand on the normative culture model uh, or uh, Vera Gordon Child on Diffusionism. We've talked about Diffusionism on this podcast for sure, because that always comes up when we're talking about ancient aliens. But I, maybe my first question here is, Vera Gordon Child's a real guy. Do you know who Hargroves is? I couldn't find out for sure if Hargroves was a real person. Didn't, didn't ring a bell for me. I actually made a note to look that up, and yeah. I, didn't, I didn't do that. But, but it's funny. So we, we talked about this in our Dial of Destiny review, because I seem to remember we got into talking about how, like, you're kind of in the the heartbeat of, sort of in the, we were, we were talking about when Binford's uh, Archaeology is Anthropology uh, had come out, would have come out at that time by Dial of Destiny. And so you're kind of sitting on the cusp of this onset of, of uh, the shift in, what what is it, 1952 that we're in? The movie is in 1957. 1957. Yeah. So you're kind of like... William Phillips will be, or I can remember, either Phillips or Willie, and then later William will be like the year after this movie. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So yeah. like 1958. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, a Child is, is fairly respected, I think, even now, right? Uh, uh, and, you know, like, I, mm-hmm. a diffusionism is, is problematic, but I think that, you know where we work from now kind of harkens back a little bit more to uh we you know both Gabe and I are kind of uh I wouldn't call us culture historians but we 
there are parts of cultural history that I think are sort of critical to the discipline that that had lo- been lost during, uh, you know, kind of a hyper focus on generalization about, uh, you know, cultural laws and, and systems, basically, you know, that we, we, we do like humans, uh, we do study humans and, and think that, you know, uh, it might be might be okay to associate them with the things that they've made. Hmm. Can you uh, define for our listeners what the culture history, culture historical period of archaeology actually means? Because I think your audience might be uh, geared a little more academic than ours is. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, basically there's there's the culture history uh, is a theoretical paradigm that's focused on putting periods in order and trying to find culture change. And in its classic form, it imagines culture change as primarily being uh, or being strongly related to diffusion, so populations moving around. And in the sense that it's it's normative, but the result of thinking about culture that way is that you kind of have to average out cultural traits. And so you you might think about kind of these generalizations, right? And you can imagine that culture change is imagined not so much as a kind of materialist continuum, but instead as a series of kind of abrupt changes, right? And if you think about those abrupt changes, you end up with an illusion of the past that's focused on like replacements and those kinds of things. One of the key things, and that's the real classic formulation, it's not, I don't think how people think about doing culture history now, but one of the things that was critical to that paradigm was that it's not until 1949 that radiocarbon dating is invented. And then it's, you know, another decade before it's, widely available and then it's you know it's become much more refined in in recent times so dealing with just making sense of time was very hard so like the listener you know might think about the kind of stuff archaeologists do right where they they put types of ceramics in order right or types of arrowheads in order and so that's a very culture historical thing to do right and to try to figure out those horizons over different places and a lot of the terms that archaeologists still use to describe culture change derive from culture historical, the culture historical paradigm, right? So we might, uh, archaeologists will talk about periods or about cultures, right? Archaeological cultures, phases, horizons, traditions, all these terms that we still use to talk about archaeology arise out of that. And then in the 1960s, which is a you know, time of, I guess, revolutionary thought in, in all many disciplines, the so-called new archaeology or processual archaeology comes on the scene and proposes a more scientific approach, I guess, that emphasizes the scientific method, deductive reasoning, and trying to figure out universal laws about humans. So do you like what I've done here? I've given the straw man argument for each <laughs> each paradigm to make fault seem as bad as possible. Um, but in the in the kind of nutshell, that's that's what those those approaches are. So think about kind of what historians do on the one hand, and then what um, what scientists do on the other. And, you know, and I think in many ways, the last, oh, I don't know, the maybe the last 30 years of archaeological theory have been seriously trying to reckon with the collision of that along with the collision of of those conflicts with the postmodern uh, approaches that would also occur in archaeology. But a question I would have about all this, though, especially um, vis-a-vis Indiana Jones, is it's not actually clear to me to what degree Jones is like an Americanist anthropologist, you know, like an anthropological archaeologist. Um, and I don't know that much about, you know, biblical archaeology. This is really the only uh, one yeah. in which he's an American. Yeah, he's really a classicist. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's not really like this is what we talked about when we were talking about the Dial of Destiny thing is it's not really clear to us how much these sort of uh, theoretical shifts in Americanist archaeology would have influenced the way that Jones approached archaeology. And and yeah, and this is the only one that takes place in the Americas and the only one that would have been kind of influenced by that sort of anthropological background. And he talks about child, too, right, which is, you know. Child didn't have had a, had an impact on Americanist archaeology, but not in the same way that he did on British archaeology and classical archaeology. So, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I can't remember where we settled on this uh, when we talked about the Dial of Destiny one. Yeah, I don't think we did settle on this. I think we were we were yeah. confused. You know, I mean, it's also not clear, right? I mean, Jones by the time Dial of Destiny comes out is is one gets the sense he's portrayed as being very out of touch and very out of style in the, in the discipline. Um, whereas in, you know, I mean, it's unclear if he gets promoted to, um, to Astine for the reason so many people do, which is that they're, uh, kind of troubled. They're not great people to be in departments with, so you need to move them up and out. Um, or if this is, you know, a genuine promotion at, at uh, yeah. is it Marshall College? Which, which is consistent. So still, yeah, yeah. So, so. And it's based at Yale. It's filmed at Yale, I guess. Yeah. So is this one though, because he's not affiliated with the museum anymore in this movie. So who is funding his research in this one or this expedition? So I, I hadn't thought about that, Ken, until you <laughs> sent that paper last night mm. by... Is Kev, it? Kevin McGue, yeah. Kevin yeah. McGue. So a colleague of mine at, at University of Lethbridge here uh, wrote a paper sort of about, basically about in, um, in popular cinema. And, uh, and, and uh, one of the things, one of the subsections of it is talking about who funds the archaeology in these and... And yeah, it's and and the point that he makes because this would have been he wrote it before this movie came out, um, but that the museum, you know, sort of the relate one of the things that Jones, Indiana Jones gets right is that it kind of indicates to into a popular audience the way that you know some of this research is funded, right? That you know that like this isn't all driven by some you know wealthy um, uh, philanthropist or or some crackpot trying to that you know that you, you need to secure funding for this and and you know the the tit for tat for indiana jones is that he brings artifacts back to the museum but in this one he sort of just takes off on his own well he's, he's being paid by the fbi and he's got to leave so it at least explains course reductions which my understanding is that's the only way to get a course reduction is actually to have the feds kick down your door <laughs> but yeah indiana jones and the national science foundation just doesn't have the same the same yeah, <laughs> but the NSF came in what the sixty-five. Uh, you know, I'm not sure, but that 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 seems about right. Yeah, and sure could be even later than that, right? Shirk, I think, was seventy-one. Yeah, Wintergren, and but yeah, the Wintergren's probably been around for a long time. Yeah, maybe it was Wintergren. Yeah, might have been Wintergren. Well, Wintergren is also very clear. They're the only granting agency that makes clear you can like pay bribes with it. <laughs> <laughs> secured safe tran- uh, tra- passage i think that's the uh, oh is that the phrase they use now yeah know. they were they were very clear when i went to the presentation that it was okay you just need to like talk to them about how to phrase it <laughs> i i thought uh, another interesting theme there is a certain theme just here about and you you talked touched on this ross i think about um about aging right like what what is mm. the kind of uh and and i think that is another place where where this movie, or or one place where this movie, I think is more interesting about it than I, I guess maybe we saw it because I thought Dial of Destiny does not handle that aging particularly well in the sense that it does it by really trying to make Indiana Jones kind of superhuman, right? 
Whereas I think you you could imagine that approach here as being a very fit 60-year-old. But they never really talk about what I would think of sort of the good parts about late career academia are, right? You know, Indiana Jones is at, at no point mentions, you know, oh, it's great, I've accomplished these things, things are interesting. And, you know, maybe that's silly, but I, but I, but it would be nice to occasionally see something beyond that, just what life takes away. Maybe I'm just hoping that things are going to mm. get better, you know, rather than get worse. He but. does He does make a point yeah. of saying he's a tenured professor of archaeology, though. He does. Part-time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Part-time. Part but I mean, he also has a, an alcohol problem and his wife left him. And so I think he has problems outside. Like he might have been a problematic and he was all throughout a problematic person already, right? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Like I love him. I'd marry him, but he's not the best man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh yeah, yeah. I had the part time actually made a note. I said, can we assume he's on a fifty fifty contract and that it's all uh all teaching <laughs> and, and research. There's no service component of his uh of his uh <laughs> of his employment. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine having to go to like a departmental health and safety meeting and uh the the chair is Indiana Jones? <laughs> well maybe speaking to his problematic nature he's not allowed to be the undergraduate advisor anymore you know yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah yeah so you you, uh, you guys you guys kind of opened my eyes to the the really problematic um the the relationship age difference between indiana jones and marion that's pointed out that you guys kind of like did the math on it and one of the things i thought was like that keeps that canon is the rate the way that he refers to her to try to get Oxley out of out of his uh, his trance is he refers to her as Abner's little girl, and yeah. so it's like that when he knew Oxley, she was just a child, and so he's trying to mm-hmm. and you know their their mentor's daughter that was a little girl that uh, that you know suddenly he that he ends up with and and Oxley obviously has a much more like healthy relationship with. Marion and that he was a father figure to her as opposed to like, you know, dating her when she was 15. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> it was disappointing once you figured that out. <laughs> yeah. Their relationship in this movie doesn't get any better than that either because like she's mad at him at first a little bit, but apparently they've just always loved each other even though he seems to have left her almost immediately after they got together in Raiders. Uh, unbeknownst to him with a child. So like them getting back together in this movie doesn't feel earned at all. Mm. No, but it's the same. And then in the Dollar Destiny, they're split again, right? Because he went into himself. Yeah, It's just a very toxic relationship. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the power imbalance is, is kind of fairly obvious. And I, I Still, think, so yeah. my understanding of the, the kind of Temple order is that um, Temple of Doom takes place first, so it's like in 1936 or something, and then Raiders, and then Holy Grail. But in Holy Grail, Marion's not mentioned at all. Nope. So mm. somewhere between Raiders and Grail, she's been dumped, and that's why how he gets with <laughs> and, Mutt, and Mutt's been born. I'm guessing. Yeah, right? it must yeah. be because if yeah. this is set in 57 and he's well 18, 19, something like that, 20. Was the uh, first one set in thirty six, or yeah, yeah Raiders, like I think thirty six. Uh, no, um, Temple of Doom is in the thirties. Yeah, I think Temple of Doom's thirty six. Yeah, Raiders is set in nineteen thirty six. Okay, and and this one is fifty seven. So Max Mutt could be twenty one. 
but probably a couple of years younger. Mm. Yeah, he just dropped out of prep school, it's implied, right? And that's where he learned defense. Is that what we're supposed yeah. to mm-hmm. take away from And that? Last Crusade is 1938 <laughs> is when it's set. So two years after Raiders. Yeah, it's an interesting timeline. Mm. So they really haven't spent very much time together at all. If you're to count up the years that they were together, it's probably like five years throughout their whole lives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that may be part of the problem at the at the end is that Indiana Jones has moved to Hunter and is also running a small CRM firm to earn up enough to pay off the old uh, child support payments that he's accumulated. So, <laughs> I mean, that would be another good one. Would be Indiana Jones and the environmental yeah. consulting company. I Indiana think. Jones and the and the pipeline project. It's a, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jones, yeah. Jones and the CPA. Yeah. Jones gone. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's unfortunately not a very good movie. That's I guess. <laughs> yeah. So what are our what are our all of our final thoughts on this movie then? That was mine. I've got that in the newer twins theory. That's that's all I got. I'm in the camp that it was it's better than I remember it being, uh, but I, I I can't forgive the three scenes that I've identified, the, you know, the, the fridge, I, I guess you guys have convinced me that maybe that's not as bad, but the Tarzan swinging and the, mm-hmm. and the, uh, uh, the, the flying saucer yeah, uh, are awful. And, and I really, really don't like the character Mac and, uh, and Mutt was also just annoying. I, I that's, you know, I, I think it fits more. Yeah. I, I will say, I think it fits more with the original trilogy than dial destiny does having seen both of them in recent memory, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm on the fence. It's, you know, neither the fourth or fifth movie hold up to the first three. Yeah. yeah. I feel like actually I thought Dala Destiny was more true to the beginning ones, but I don't know, but just Shia LaBeouf just pissed me off so much in this that I don't think that I ever really gave it that much. Like everything else about it didn't really bother me because it all kind of fit. Like when I talked to other people about it, they'd be like, Oh, it was just so silly and so corny. Like that would never happen. I was like, yeah, but, Indiana Jones yeah. is corny, right? It's just uncorny. Yeah. So I didn't mind it all that much, except for the Shia LaBeouf and the monkey scene, and yeah. Except for the second most predominant character it was fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my thoughts are similar. Just that I, I, I don't think it, for me it didn't get any better with the kind of passing of time. Um, it's definitely the worst of the of the five, I think, by a long shot. And I agree with Kim that I yeah, think, I think it, it's Dial yeah, it's Destiny's a, a better yeah. film. It's not it's not a great film, but it's better than than Crystal Skull. And that's how I described it to to friends who asked what I thought of Dial of Destiny, better than Crystal Skull. And that's you got to take that as a win, I think. I was really hoping I was going to be able to come in to this being contrary and be like, oh, no, Crystal Skull is the best one. It's my favorite one. And I can't do that. <laughs> I think Ross and I probably would have just quit. We would have been like, yeah. that's it. You need to find new host. We'd have done like the Dean and just uh, submitted our resignations. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I've got a question. Does anyone know anyone who, who likes Crystal Skull? So uh, a, a bunch of my students actually like just like Dial Destiny, you know, I think instant you, fail, instant fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was I was on sabbatical, so I, I, with Indiana Jones, <laughs> I was doing an Indiana Jones, you know. Anyway, but the um, and I, I was just curious about it because I, no one's ever told me they like Crystal Skull, but a mm. lot of people have told me they like no, not a lot, but a handful of people, probably more than not, have told me they like that of Destiny. I don't know if anyone knows mm. anyone who likes Crystal Skull. 
Yeah. No, I don't. So I I think I'm the only one who hasn't seen Dial of Destiny because I was just like, oh, yeah, I'll get to it eventually. And then when I finally looked up the showtimes, it's out of theaters already. I'm like, what? Can't be. Time can't be moving that fast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But um, I will say say that if I'm going to choose an Indiana Jones, there's a pretty good chance, and I might regret it after I make the decision, there's a pretty good chance I choose Crystal Skull just because... It hits the stuff I'm interested in. I like that pseudo-archaeology, the the aliens and the crystal skulls. That's what I like. So if you gave me the option, like you have to watch one Indiana Jones, you can only choose one. I might choose it. And then at halfway through, I might be like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have chosen this one. But uh, I might do it. Face. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's a more controversial, face. highly controversial. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to get to the other ones because I uh, Temple of Doom is the one I've seen the least. I might have only seen it all the way through in one sitting once in my life. Uh, But in my memory, that's my least favorite. So I might put Crystal Skull above Temple of Doom. Once we go back and rewatch it, I might change my mind. But uh, this is where (laughs) I'm sitting with them. Ross is going to have to go lay down after this. Yeah. Having rewatched them all recently, I actually quite enjoyed Temple of Doom again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Apart from all the screaming at the start, which if you have children, the, there's just too much screaming. It's, a, it's mm. like a PTSD thing harkening back to. Um, yeah. But uh, but after that, it gets it gets pretty good. So. The, the first three are, are more beautiful movies. I think they're more. They just look yeah. better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Too. Yeah. They don't really have all that regular boring Hollywood stuff that the other ones. And it's have. all practical. I mean, that I think that's also the difference is that you know, Crystal Skull very much is burdened by the crappy cgi that it has mm-hmm. yeah that uncanny valley effect and like mm-hmm. and the and like the weird fourth wall like with the ant goop ending up on the camera screen i was like mm-hmm. why you know it's just an odd decision you know that uh i think a lot of the reason why people hated the crystal skull like there was so much reaction to that and then everybody's like oh darla Destiny was pretty good it wasn't bad is because we, you know, the trilogy, and then you grew up on it, and then you waited so long, and then they made a fourth Indiana, and you're so excited about it. And yeah. it was always going to let you down, but it let you down worse than what you expected. Mm. And then, so I think everybody just went into the Dial of Destiny just a little bit cautiously, right? Like, I wasn't expecting much. I kind of expected to hate it. You, I would completely agree with that, actually. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I went into it with no expectations, and I was actually pleasantly surprised. Yeah, same. Yeah. But I went into the Crystal Skull with huge expectations. <laughs> it was like Phantom Menace all over again. Yeah. Mm. I mean, what's what's a movie without a 40-minute pod racing scene? Like, that's, you know, that's... Yeah. And then that would make Mutt would be that Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. Yeah. He was Absolutely. very Jar Jar Binks. 100%. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Ken and Gabe, where can our listeners find you? Oh, uh, so... Uh, we do the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, and that's available um, anywhere fine podcasts are downloaded. And we have we have Instagram, we have a YouTube channel, uh, and uh, do we have any other platforms? I don't think so. No, I think. The, are you on X? Uh, I I am, and occasionally, but but not really. I it's like I pretty much do just to post the podcast once in a while. I've never, I never have been, and I never will be, which is a, a real point of pride for me. Yeah, That's, yeah. Uh... And we have an email address as well, which is, uh, Ken, what is our email address? 
New Brunswick Archaeology, all one word, and it's spelled A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y, so in the Americanist tradition, at gmail.com, newbrunswickarchaeology at gmail.com. It's an email address that we get people to send emails to, and then I forget to respond to them. So, But we typically read so them like on every air. email address, then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. I have a question for you about your podcast, because you've had a, a contest to win some swag. Uh, and has that uh, is that contest still ongoing? The contest is ongoing. The, um, the hiatus that we've been on for the month of August so far has um, meant that uh, that swag from uh, Ecofor is still available. And the way the way <laughs> you would get that is if you go to our Instagram I mean, or you can email us. There's a bingo card made by one of our listeners. Ken and I, this this probably won't shock you, even after only knowing us for about an hour now, um, hit on some of the same themes over and over again. And the bingo card refers to some of those themes. So if you email us a uh, finished bingo card or tag us with uh, on Instagram with or, or any other social media you have, really, it's just that that's where we're going to see it, um, with a finished bingo card, you get entered into the drawing and uh, for a bunch of cool swag, like some trowels, backpack, hats. That's such a good idea. Cool. Yeah, it's a great yeah. idea. Yeah. Here's here's my question for you, though. Does it have to be a winning bingo card or just a filled out <laughs> bingo card? <laughs> We've been a little vague on that, but I, I think we applied a winning. Someone might have snuck in, but we're changing the rules now. It has to be a winning bingo card. Yeah. See, that's my problem. I haven't won yet. I've been I've been playing along, but I haven't got a winning card to send in. We uh, we went to go draw it the first time, and uh, uh, Gabe and I didn't talk about this before. And we went to go make the draw, and realized we didn't have anybody entered in the contest yet. So, so we had to <laughs> change the rules so yeah, that yeah. we had people enter the contest. Yeah, we had a whole setup too because the other one each thought the other one must have had a stack of them to draw from. Yeah, we we do have successful entries now. Yeah. Not very many. And and, and 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 you guys. So you mentioned you've got like a, around like fifty followers or whatever, right? Like a, you know the audience, and and I wonder like we, we have about fifty followers, and I wonder if we're the Venn diagram is oh, just yeah. two circles, maybe <laughs> of, of these, of these yeah. two two archaeology podcasts, yeah. you know. <laughs> I, I think that most of our listeners are not archaeologists or paleontologists. I think most of our listeners are people that like movies because the emails that we've got from people typically say, I don't typically listen to science podcasts or archaeology podcasts, but I'm interested in all these movies. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. I, I We don't get a lot of listener email. Uh, we don't have great metrics. I don't know how your metrics are, but it's really hard to tell how many people are actually listening yeah. in most cases. But uh, my sense is that most of our listeners, I don't know where they find us, but uh, I have a sense that they are listening because they don't already know all this stuff and they're learning cool stuff about the movies they like, which is exactly why we made this podcast. So that's pretty encouraging for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've gotten feedback from people that like are non-archaeologists that have have enjoyed the podcast and and have also pointed out that as non-archaeologists, despite our best efforts to try to, you know, explain to an audience that's not an archaeologist, apparently we get a little bit too much into the inside baseball. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a, and, <laughs> something we'll work on in our second season, I guess. Yeah, and we're going to be doing more interviews and like panel discussions kind of like this too in the next season because their yeah. first season was really trying to just set up kind of the archaeological history of New Brunswick and surrounding areas. So it was much more like Ken and I yeah. talking about stuff and now it'll be us fleshing out that now that everyone has the background, we hope. But we'll have to get you guys on for like yeah. the next movie. Uh, like we'll have mm -hmm. to figure out in the next year or so the, a movie that uh, that we can have you invite you guys on to to pan something that uh, yeah. uh, that we can. <laughs> they can review the Cree Hunters of Mustasny. 
That'll be. Oh, there you go. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Is that a movie? Yeah, or it's a documentary. Yeah. Yeah. It's an NF National Film Board of Canada documentary. It's on the bingo card. Oh yeah, we've talked about the National <laughs> Film Board of Canada a few times on this. Oh, podcast. cool. Neat. Was the uh, the ugly little boy? Was that from the National Film Board of Canada, or was that no. uh, something independent? Possibly, I don't yeah. remember. Could well be. I don't know. The uh, Isaac Asimov uh, story about uh, a Neanderthal child oh, that cool. was brought into the future. Oh, cool. I actually don't know that one. I don't either. Mm-hmm, it's very interesting. Hmm. Uh, something else we talked about National Film Board, though I can't remember what we were talking about. Neat. Was it about? Was it about the house hippo? Was that National Film Board? <laughs> the house hippo is. Uh, <laughs> these guys are laughing because every Canadian knows the house hippo. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was. Uh, Concerned children's advertisers, or something like that. Is that what it's yeah, a message yeah. from concerned children's advertisers? All it did was break our hearts. Yeah, one of the joys of my my uh, 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 friendship with Gabe is is introducing him to Canadiana, like yeah. that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. when we were doing our episode on on the proto historic proto contact period, um, an early historic period, Gabe had never seen the John Cabot heritage moment. <laughs> So we yeah. watched it while we were recording the Sire uh, till the end of time, like the the COD, epi- uh, COD one, and uh, yeah. So that's, yeah. Uh, I know the word. It means nation, and Canada is its oh, name. Yeah. I can yeah, remember yeah. word for word those heritage yeah. minutes. There, I think there's yeah. a YouTube playlist of all the heritage minutes. We'll put those in the in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't mind seeing those as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> I smell burnt toast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Ross. It's okay. No, I feel like I'm missing out. On... But it sounds like Canadian propaganda. It's what you're kind of describing to me. Oh, oh, it's, oh yeah. they don't hold up. Put it that way. They uh, <laughs> yeah. they they have a very focused, uh, a narrow focus on what what exactly Canadian heritage is. And okay. uh, lo and behold, it's mostly post Confederation and mm. a lot of white. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a lot of different kinds of uh, commercial segments for various propaganda that used to play on uh, children's programming. Do you guys <laughs> remember drugs, drugs, drugs? Yeah. <laughs> some are good, some are bad. <laughs> drugs, I, drugs, I, ask your mom, ask your dad. I played that drugs, drugs, drugs commercial for a friend of mine from uh, Europe, and uh, she was like, how can they say drugs are good and bad to children? Like, <laughs> we didn't just have blanket they, drugs are, are bad education in Canada. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was that the same one with the raccoons trying to eat the mushrooms? No, but that no, was a I, good one, too. Yeah. Wasn't that the, don't you put it in your mouth? Don't you yeah. put it in your mouth? <laughs> don't you stuff it in your face? Don't you stuff it in your face? Though it might look good to eat. <laughs> like this is going the off the like rails. Like a muffin or a beet. <laughs> 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 if you don't know just what it is remember boys and girls yeah well everybody except the canadians have shut off this episode to, so yeah. for all the uh, canadian listeners who are still listening uh check out the new brunswick archaeology podcast wherever you get your podcasts uh play that uh bingo card and maybe win some cool archaeology swag And, uh, yeah, we'll have you on again for another movie. We'll be on your show if you uh, want us to talk about something. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for coming. If you've been enjoying Screens of the Stone Age, get in touch with us. Follow us on Twitter at SOTSA underscore podcast and on Facebook at SOTSA podcast. 
or send us an email to screensofthestoneage at gmail.com. Screens of the Stone Age is supported by the Paleoanthropological Society of Canada. Find out more at pasc-scpa.ca. This is a pretty long recording here. The, the, <laughs> this is like the shortest episode we've ever had, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>